Let's pray as we prepare our hearts to hear God's Word. Father, we thank You for this Easter day, this Resurrection Sunday, that we can gather in Your house to worship You. Thank You for those who've been baptized this day. And thank You, Lord, for Your Word, because it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in Your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. I'm going to try and uh, um, give you a short meditation, uh, as short as I can do, uh, within a space of time because, you know, time is running on. But I want to look at this passage uh, in John's Gospel and for us to reflect on the events that took place 2,000 years ago after Jesus rose from the dead on the very first Resurrection Sunday. In verse 8 of John 20, it says, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. And that's why I've entitled my uh, sermon today, Seeing and Believing. You know, we live in a world where a lot of people make all kinds of promises and all kinds of truth claims. And yet, the reality, you know, with the more and more information that comes at us, our skepticism continues to grow. We live in a skeptical world, don't we? Right? There's this uh, hermeneutic of suspicion. Everything we read, there's a sense of, like, is this really right? Is this really true? And um, it's, it's no wonder that we think that way. You look at the number of scams. The other day I was walking by, and I don't know, the police put up a signboard, you know, it says every day over half a million dollars is lost to scams. <laughs> right? It's it, uh, amazing all the things that are out there that uh, you don't know what to believe. And I don't know about you, oftentimes, you know, the mantra that many of us have is, I'll believe it when I see it. Because we have this tendency, right, seeing is believing. For example, if I said to you, I'm going to lose 10 kg by the end of the year, you turn and look at me, I'll, see, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> or someone would say, I'm going to be here on time. And this person's always late, right? And it's said, I'll believe it when I see it. Or if they say, I'll send you the money next week, I promise. He said, I'll believe it when I see it after I check my bank account if it comes in or not. And, you know, that's our human tendency. It's no wonder, you know, when we read about the resurrection, when we have accounts like this, we have difficulty uh, coming to terms with it. And this story is quite an amazing story. And it begins with this. It says, now on the first day of the week, the Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And as you read through the story, you see the story, you know, unfolds more and more details. There were two disciples, Peter and John. John doesn't name himself. He calls himself the beloved disciple. That was his own nickname because, you know, it seems like Jesus loved him more than the rest. Seemed like, I mean, that's from his perspective. And you can tell that it was an eyewitness account because he, he pointed out, I ran faster than Peter. You know, I won the race. This is like typical male behavior, right? And you, everything is a competition. But even though he got to the tomb first, after Mary had, uh, you know, uh, told them that the tombs, the stone to the tomb had been rolled away, he dared not go in. There was some level of timidity, but Peter being Peter, you know, he's the guy who's brash and who's impulsive and he does what, he rushed right in. And what did they see? It says there, they saw the burial cloths 
the cloth that um, um, Jesus was buried in. Now, not just that. If you uh, came for our Good Friday service, we read from the earlier part in John's Gospel. It was said that uh, Joseph of Arimathea and, and Nicodemus had brought 75 pounds of spices, right? That's 30 kilos plus of spices and laid it on the body. And they wrapped him up with these uh, burial cloths as is their custom. And it was just lying there. And, you know, his face cloth wasn't just lying there. It was folded and put aside. You know, Jesus made his bed when he left. <laughs> Very disciplined, it seems like. But it was amazing because you see that, you know, when he got into that empty tomb, he saw and he believed. What did he see and why did he believe? I believe, and many scholars do think, you know, it's as if the body was just translated out of the cross. And it lay there as if it was still wrapped around the body. It wasn't unwrapped meticulously. That's, that's how I think, that's why he believed that something must have happened. But notice this, in the ver next verse, it says there, For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. In other words, they knew something had happened. They knew what had happened, that Jesus rose from the dead. The problem was, at that point of time, they still didn't understand why. What was actually taking place? You know, some people had talked about the resurrection as a conjuring trick with bones. And, and, you know, it's like magic taking place. But I want to address this issue because ultimately, many of us have faulty understanding that needs correction. And um, uh, there have been people in years past, historically, that have tried to debunk this uh, uh, resurrection. And they've gone through great lengths to try and um, give explanations that many uh, tend to lean towards this thought that, you know, it was a resuscitation rather than a resurrection. That Jesus didn't die on the cross, he fainted. Which, uh, I guess, if you have never gone through crucifixion, you may uh, run there. You know, if you know exactly what took place, that he was scourged. And scourging is such that, you know, you've got a bone and, and metal at the end of a whip, and when it lays into the body and when you pull flesh is removed. Very often, scourging leaves the back bare and the bones are exposed. You know, and I believe that's why Jesus died so early. He died within six hours of hanging on the cross. Most people who were crucified took three to four days to die. And, you know, if he even um, managed to survive, the theory goes that he was in the cool of the tomb and he revived. He revived and he removed 75 pounds of spices from himself and he rolled a stone that took many people to roll away. I don't know about you. If you've ever been injured, you know, you don't have that sort of energy. If you've ever been sick or you're weak on your bed, you don't wake up and suddenly be able to do feats of superhuman strength. I think it takes more faith to believe that that happened than to believe the fact that it was a resurrection that took place. You know, and all of these things are really hard for us to wrap our minds around. All these books have been written, you know, but I remember in my own life back in the early 90s, you know, this was one of the reasons why I um, not came to faith for the first time. I grew up in a pastor's family, 
very young age. In fact, when I was here in Church of the Good Shepherd, I was a member of the Boys' Brigade uh, 9th Junior Company. And I remember we had uh, uh, one of the Bible studies. The, the officer that day, I think it was uh, Anita Wong. I can't remember correctly or sure or not, but she had shared the gospel. I've asked her before, but she doesn't remember the incident. And she gave us all an opportunity to respond, and I did. I raised my hand. You know, I remember distinctly, I was probably about nine years, maybe ten years old, primary three or primary four at the point of time. And, uh, you know, in that sense, I've been a Christian all my life and, and have never known a time when I didn't know Jesus Christ. But it was post-NS, I remember, I had followed my dad on a trip and I was staying in this um, Bible college and they gave me a room which had a lot of books and I loved that. So I picked the book off the shelf and it was written by Michael Green, You Must Be Joking about um, uh, basically a book on apologetics. And I remember it was the chapter in which, you know, he was addressing all these theories of what happened, that Jesus, you know, fainted rather than died. And he just very uh, methodically, scientifically described what crucifixion, crucifixion was like. And I remember thinking, my goodness, Jesus went to the cross and suffered these things on my behalf. And mind you, it's not an emotional book. It was not meant to be one. It was meant to appeal to the mind. But I remember as I was reading step by step what had happened and the reality of what Jesus went through on my behalf, emotion overcame me. And I was weeping and I was sobbing great sobs and I couldn't stop myself from crying. You know, it's like Jesus encountered me at that point of time, understanding all that He had done on my behalf. But, you know, beyond that, if you carry on reading, you begin to see also that not only as a Christian, my life was transformed, the people who were very eyewitnesses of what happened, Peter, his life was transformed. Earlier, uh, our sister um, Ellen read from the, gospel, uh, the, the book of Acts, and it's a story in which he's addressing a group of uh, um, Gentiles who have been baptized in the Holy Spirit and they experience for themselves the um, uh, wonderful infilling of the Holy Spirit. And he begins to describe to them what had happened about Jesus dying on the cross and being raised again. And he pointed out that we are witnesses. You know, if you read the book of Acts, you see how his life was transformed. Uh, again, Good Friday, when we read through the Gospel of John, you see Peter being uh, um, confronted by different people and three times he denied Jesus. Once the person confronting him was a slave girl. You know, someone who is the lowest on the totem pole. Even before her, he couldn't admit the truth. He denied Jesus. He was fearful for his life. But if you skip forward to Acts chapter 4, if you go and read that, it tells us from the beginning of Acts 4, he's standing before the Sanhedrin. And he's standing before Caiaphas, and Annas, the two high priests who had condemned Jesus to death, the one who, uh, and the council, the Sanhedrin was the council that, you know, stood and, and pressed Pilate to make sure Pilate put Jesus to death. And this is like months later, right, between uh, uh, Easter and Pentecost. It is, it's several months only, and maybe a few months after that, it, it's the account. And he was so bold and willing to stand up and identify Jesus, not just as uh, Jesus of Nazareth, but the one whom uh, God has raised from the dead and is the Messiah and is God's Son. 
That transformed life was amazing. Charles Colson, back in the 70s, was the special counsel to Richard Nixon. And if you know anything about American uh, history, you know Richard Nixon was the um, uh, president who was about to be impeached because of a scandal called Watergate. Basically, in preparing for the election, they went and stole secrets from the other party. They were Republicans. They went to steal secrets from the Democratic uh, uh, Party to find out you know, their strategy so that they could countermand it. And they got caught uh, burglarizing. And over the next few weeks, things began to unfold. And much later in his life, he gave an interview and he was talking about this uh, Watergate scandal and it's not here, sorry, I didn't put it up. But he says this, Here were ten of the most powerful men in the United States, he said, referring to the Watergate cover-up attempt. With all that power, we couldn't contain a lie for two weeks. <laughs> Applying the Watergate scandal to the New Testament and to current suggestions that accounts of Jesus' resurrection were a conspiracy perpetrated by his apostles, he says this, No way. Take it from one who was involved in conspiracy, who saw the frailty of man firsthand. There is no way the 11 apostles who were with Jesus at the time of the resurrection could ever have gone around for 40 years proclaiming Jesus' resurrection unless it were true. And especially because all 11 of them ultimately lost their lives because they stood for this truth of the resurrection. Even John, even though he wasn't martyred in the normal sense, he was cast into exile until he died, clinging to this truth. But where does this leave us as you and me? Where does this leave us as Christians today? Or even those who might be in our midst who are not yet Christians? The resurrection is so central to our faith that the Apostle Paul uh, says this just in the verses before the passage that was written, uh, read to us. It says in verses uh, 16 of 1 Corinthians 15, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, in other words, those who have died before us, in Christ, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That's it. There's no more for them. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He points out that this resurrection, this truth that took place not only in history, but its effects and power uh, continue to this day, tell us, that there is more than this life. There's more than what we are doing and living here and now, that it is central to our faith. Why is this important for us? I don't know how many of you have watched, uh, read this comic strip, uh, Calvin and Hobbes. You know, it used to be serialized, and in the old days, it used to be in the newspapers. Now you can just Google it and find it online, and you can go read the whole comic strip, or you can buy the book and read the comic strip, and it's great fun. But there's one particular... Uh, uh, episode in which Kelvin, the young boy, and Hobbes, which is his imaginary friend, this lion, uh, have a, a conversation. They're sledding down a slope, and you know they're talking about Christmas. And Hobbes, uh, uh, or Kelvin, says to Hobbes, "I'm getting nervous about Christmas." 
Hobbes replies, you're worried you haven't been good? And Kelvin answers, that's just the question. It's all relative. What's Santa's definition? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? I haven't killed anybody. See, that's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wars. I don't practice cannibalism. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I should get lots of presents? Hobbes reply. But maybe good is more than the absence of bad. And Kelvin then says, See, that's what worries me. <laughs> All of us, if we are honest with ourselves, probably are much like Kelvin. We're not that bad. We've not done on any of these massively evil things. But the question still remains, how good is good? How good is our good? Is what we term good, good enough? The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of God's standards, God's glory. And therein lies the rub. There's the crux of the issue. None of us, in and of ourselves, are actually good enough to earn eternal life, to secure our future. But God knew that, and that's why He sent Jesus Christ into the world. That's why in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Paul tells us that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins, and He was raised to life for our justification. That He paid the debt we could not pay when He died on the cross for us on Good Friday. But the fact that Jesus raised Him from the dead, that says that Jesus' righteousness has now been given to us, that we are now justified. When God looks at us, He looks and He sees Jesus. And we qualify to be His sons and His daughters. We qualify for eternal life because of what Jesus has done for us. Right towards the end of this chapter, which we didn't read, John, who wrote this gospel, says this, Jesus told the disciples, or Thomas in particular, who had doubted and until he saw Jesus for himself, he said, You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Is Jesus talking about a blind faith? I don't believe so, because a blind faith is basically, according to the dictionary, blind faith is belief without true understanding, perception, or discrimination. In other words, you just, you know, hit and hope. It's faith without any basis. You see, faith is important. And faith is what we go by because oftentimes we have not seen these things for ourselves even though we may have experienced it. But what matters most about our faith is what we have placed our faith in. Years ago, in year 2000, on uh, October 31st, somewhere around 11pm, there was a Singapore Airlines flight taking off from the Taipei International Airport, the Chiang Kai-shek at that time, International Airport. And they were, you know, sort of 
bad weather, a lot of rain, and there was a storm going on, so visibility was poor, not just because it was at night. And as you know how that story went, the pilots found themselves trying to take off from the wrong runway. In taxiing, they had made the wrong turn. They had been given the right instructions, but they couldn't see the labels, and they had assumed they were on the right path, even though the instruments, if they had looked at it, would have told them they were on the wrong path. And you know what happened, right? As they took off, they struck some construction equipment that was on that runway, and that plane crashed. And 83 people on board out of the 179 lost their lives. Not only that, over 71 of them were injured, 39 of them quite seriously. Those pilots had faith in their ability, in their training. They had faith that they made the right decision when they turned onto that runway. But what you have your faith in is what makes all the difference in the world. Or maybe I should say who you place your faith in. Who is Jesus to you? is a question that not only has consequences for this life, but has far-reaching consequences right into eternity. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 11 verses 1 to 3, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then he goes on to recount men and women of God who had placed their faith in God and God was faithful that His goodness ran after them, that He carried them through thick and thin because of the faith that they had in Him. And then it goes on in verse 6 to say, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Now, I know there are many of you here who are long-time members of this church. But just because you've been attending church week after week after week doesn't automatically qualify you as a Christian any more than if you went to a garage week after week after week makes you a car. What matters is who have you placed your faith in? It can't be the faith of your parents. It can't be the faith of your grandparents. It has to be a faith that you have discovered for yourself. That you are willing to draw near to God and you believe that He exists and that He does reward those who seek Him. And I stand here today as one who has sought after God with all my heart, despite the fact that I grew up in a Christian home each step of the way I had to come to terms with who God is. There were times in my life where there were crises of faith because of situations, because of things that I've had to face that I had to ask again and I had to seek God and God proved Himself real to me time and time again. The Bible says that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Today, you've had an opportunity to hear. Whether you've been a long-time member of Good Shepherd or you're just a visitor, 
And I want to give you an opportunity to respond in faith to Jesus. With every eye closed and every head bowed, I'd like you to search your heart of hearts. And I believe that there are some here, your hearts are strangely warm. There is this unmistakable pull that you're feeling. Maybe it's because you have never given your life to Jesus before. You've heard about Him. You know many stories about Him. But He's still someone who is sort of remote to you. There isn't a personal relationship. You're not sure He is real in your own life. Today, I want to give you an opportunity to respond, to invite Jesus into your heart, to believe in Him. But there's also another category of people I want to address, and that are those who maybe in the past you've had an experience of Jesus. But from that time on, something has happened. Maybe you faced deep disappointment. Maybe you found that your prayers were not answered when even though you prayed so fervently. Or it could be you've just drifted away because of the company you keep, because of the um, distractions that have drawn you away from Him. You know, I believe none of us are here today by accident, that God is drawing us back to Himself. That He's building faith within us. That He's opening the eyes of our hearts to see Him so that we may believe. If you're in either of these categories or anywhere in between today, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to Him. And it's as simple as ABC. There are only three things you need to do. A, first, you need to acknowledge, first and foremost, that you can't do it on your own. That because of your sins, because of the fact that you are not good enough, you know you can't make it on your own. Acknowledge that fact. B stands for believing in Jesus. Believe that God loved us so much that He provided the solution for us. That we don't have to earn our own salvation. Jesus did it all for us. We acknowledge our sins, we believe in Jesus, but see, the third is this. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. So it's as simple as ABC. And with every eye closed, every head bowed, no one walking around, just respect this moment. I'd like to pray for you, but before you do that, I'd like to see an indication on your part that you'd like prayer to take these three steps of faith so that the eyes of your heart may be open to receive God. If there's anyone here who would like me to pray for you, just quickly slip your hand up and then put it back down just as an indication. Thank you. Yes, I see that hand. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Very quickly. I don't want to take too much more time because we need to move on with the service. Anyone else who needs prayer? Thank you. One last call. Anyone else? Whether you've raised your hands or not, and this is your prayer, I'd like you to pray this prayer with me out loud. And those of you who are Christians, let's join in with our brothers and sisters to encourage them as well. We pray this prayer. Dear God, our Heavenly Father, 
we are sorry that we have not done what is right. That we have sinned and we cannot save ourselves. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. That he came to earth, that he went to the cross and died for us, but that on the third day he rose again, giving us the assurance that we too can rise to new life. That we can become new creations by the grace of God. Please, Lord, won't you come into my heart? Give me the Holy Spirit to live within me, to empower me, to transform me so that I can become all that you intend for me to be. I ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, Amen. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for those who have responded this day. Thank you, Lord, for the many people who have raised their hands, but even for those maybe who have not yet raised their hands, but are on this path and are continuing to seek you. Lord, I thank you that you have said in your word that if we believe and we seek you with all our hearts, you reward us, that you will be found of us. And Lord, I pray that if they set off on this journey, they will find you in due time. For those who have made that decision, Father, I pray that they will have the courage to share this with someone. And that, Lord, there will be opportunities for them to continue to grow in faith as you continue to do your deep work in their lives. These things we ask and pray through your Son's most precious name. And all God's people say, Amen. I'm going to ask Kenneth to come and lead us in a